This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Happy New Year, friends, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Sruer. Today on the show, we are joined by Angela Stesey. Angela is an activist anthropologist, which you'll learn more about in today's episode, who is currently a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She studies the globalization of the rural U.S. South and social inequality. Angela has done significant research and work in the poultry industry in rural Mississippi, which you'll learn a lot about in today's episode. In the episode, Angela shares about her work as an anthropologist, how Latino migration has transformed the U.S. South, and about how she and we can be supporting workplace justice. The episode is very educational. I learned so much from talking with Angela, and it really got me thinking about how cultures come together, how we can gain perspective by looking into our own communities, and about the buying power as a consumer. I hope you love this episode and it gives you something really informative to start your year off. Welcome, Angela, to the Illuminate podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Sruer, and I am so excited to have you here today. You've been on my list of guests um, that we wanted to bring on to the show to just learn more about your work. So welcome. Thanks so much, Kristen. I'm super excited to get to talk with you. Angela, you're an anthropologist. That's right. And today when I was thinking about some of the questions that I wanted to ask you, I was like, I need to actually Google anthropologist because obviously (laughs) it is, you know, following the trends of human needs and values. And but how does an anthropologist define what an anthropologist is? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I think in some high schools, for example, kids might get sociology or psychology, maybe geography, but I, I think it's very, very rare for someone to, like a layperson, to to really be acquainted with anthropology before college, right? And if they're lucky, they get to take an anthropology class in college and, and the whole world opens up. Um, so I'm really passionate about anthropology, which is, as you say, sort of generally you know, the study of humankind and all our complexities, um, present and past, um, both cultural and biological and, and um, material. So there are lots of different kinds of anthropologists, uh, which I can tell you more about if you're interested. But my, my kind of anthropologist, I'm a so- social anthropologist or a cultural anthropologist, and I study social change and social problems. So similar to sociology, but with some different sorts of, of methods and disciplinary history. And are you, are, you are currently at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, right? That's right. Yeah. And how long have you been there? Uh, I've been here just over three years. Yeah, we came in 2016. Great. And then tell me a little bit about the, the social change and the, 
that you're researching and studying and teaching on? Yeah, well, I'm interested in contemporary culture. I was trained as a Latin Americanist, so I got a master's degree in Latin American studies, but I was at the University of Texas. Um, and even though I was um, studying Latin America, I was I ended up doing a lot of research um, in the U.S. with um, Latino, Latina immigrant communities. Uh, and that became sort of, that's been the focus of my of my work over the last 20 years, um, principally in the U.S. South, so it's fitting that I'm that I'm in North Carolina uh, because this is the sort of the area of the world that I study. Uh, but I'm interested in how I'm interested broadly in sort of social inequality and more specifically how uh, immigration status and race and gender and other sort of forms of um, or pieces of our identities are are bound up with with questions of power and opportunity and oppression. Wow, that's very complex work to be studying. <laughs> How did you even get started in this field? Where did that where did that begin? Uh, as I mentioned, I was I was doing a master's in Latin American studies, which is a two-year you know, terminal degree, and I thought when I was um, when I was in college, I was I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I guess backing up a little bit, um, what brought me to anthropology was that in college I had um, the great fortune and opportunity to study abroad. And it's really, I think study abroad is so, can be so transformational. And I, I really wish that every person uh, on the planet had the opportunity to travel somewhere that was different from where they were from, um, both to learn about another part of the world and how people live somewhere else and think somewhere else. Um, but also because I think it gives us a lot of perspective on ourselves and on our own society. Um, and it was actually through study abroad that I first came across anthropology. Um, I did, I had the opportunity to study in a few different places. And when one was a semester um, in the Yucatan of Mexico, um, where I was in an anthropology um, department. And that's where I first learned about the the field and, and became interested in sort of thinking through, you know, human, human relations and, and social problems. There is something really powerful. I agree with you about getting outside of your own culture and experiencing another culture and seeing it through somebody else's eyes. And I know I wish there was some way to grant everybody in the world that opportunity to be able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was it was completely transformational to think about not just to learn, you know, how other people live, but to recognize sort of my own blind spots and my the privileges that I carried with me that I carry with me in the world that I maybe took for granted. Right. Um, U.S. citizenship, um, whiteness, being educated and and middle class. Uh, those were all things that that sort of come into stark relief, right? When you have the opportunity to engage with people who are different from you. I think about that a lot. And similarly, I have had the opportunity to travel a lot through my work, but also growing up in a military family, we were afforded some opportunities to travel as a family. And that was something that my parents thought was really important for me and my siblings to gain those perspectives. And I hope to be able to pass that on to 
our children as well so that they have that perspective. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a real privilege to be in a position to be able to cross borders, right. And, um, with relative ease and, and to, to be able to see other, other places and meet other people. And of course, a lot of people in the world don't have those privileges, but I, I, I wish that more, I wish that more of us across the world did. And certainly in the U S, you know, I think there's a real, there's a real opportunity in for and more investment in our colleges and universities um, that could allow every student the opportunity to study abroad. I know that's something that that UNC and other universities are are really trying to to figure out a way to do right to to guarantee students that opportunity. And that's I had I also had that opportunity. Now coming away from traveling abroad, you lived for six years in Mississippi. Yeah. That, no, I, I, I lived, I worked in Mississippi with a poultry worker center for six years. Okay. Uh, but I, I lived in Mississippi for a little over two years. Okay. Solid. So tell me, mm-hmm. how did you end up in Mississippi and what were you doing there? Well, so I guess this was the other, this was the other piece to your, to the, your question about uh, like how, how and why anthropology. One of the things that I, that I was thinking about when you asked, uh, you know, why anthropology was sort of is related to this question of how I got to Mississippi. Um, When I was at the University of Texas as a grad student, there were a group of faculty and students there who were really doing a lot of thinking uh, together about how anthropology could sort of walk alongside people who were organizing to improve the conditions of their lives. So part of the history of anthropology has been that anthropologists have often been the white men who are traveling around the world and studying the cultural other, right? The exotic other. Um, and it's, it's a, a history, sort of a, a colonialist history that anthropology and anthropologists have really struggled with. And the folks that I was studying with at Texas were, were thinking about how could we do, how could we approach anthropo- anthropology in a different way, uh, in a way that produces research, not just for scholars or, you know, to be used uh, in books on college campuses, but to produce knowledge alongside people who could use that knowledge um, to improve their lives. And so um, we call this approach to anthropology activist anthropology. And that's ultimately what what took me to Mississippi. I was looking for, I was really compelled by this idea that, that we're both learning from and contributing to improving uh, the lives of people that we that we are studying and working with. I like that terminology because when you do think about traditional anthropology, it's more the study of, right? Right, and it's extractive, right? Yeah, and so I like that that's, okay, how do we move from the study of to studying plus improving? Right, and how do we, when we're producing knowledge, we're often, I use the word extractive because I think we're often sort of learning from others, taking what we learn and then claiming it as our own novel research when in fact a lot of what we're learning we're learning alongside others who are also thinking about these issues Um, and so I wanted to do research with people who were kind of co-thinking with me and and um, collaborating really more deeply on the project so that is what led me to Mississippi contextual about Mississippi (laughs) yeah well so wait where are you from originally Uh, I grew up in uh, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. So not from Mississippi, not from the South. No, but it was a very cold winter my last year in college. And so I, um, I 
headed south as quickly as I could. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I went to college in, at the University of Florida, and I've been in the south largely ever since. Okay. So why Mississippi is interesting. Uh, I had been working with Latina, Latino immigrant communities in Texas for a couple of years. I was working with employment, an employment justice organization that saw that was sort of tracking the movement of immigrant agricultural workers out of places like Texas and Florida and into the Deep South. And they were being recruited to the Deep South by the poultry industry uh, and were finding opportunities in places that they, you know, that had very few immigrant immigrant people through basically the slaughter of chicken. And it was it was sort of this network, loose network of folks who who coalesced around an organization called the National Poultry Justice Alliance that first led me to Mississippi. And it's kind of a funny story because I got invited to a meeting in Washington, D.C. of the National Poultry Justice. Uh, and it was, you know, people who cared about uh, worker justice and public health and environmental justice and uh, the lives and livelihoods of people who grow chickens, sort of all coming together and trying to see if they had if they what they had in common. And it was actually at this meeting that I met uh, my husband, Tutu. I don't know if you knew that, Kristen. No, I was going to ask you how you met your husband. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and then and once I was at that meeting, I uh, I was I said, okay, well, I there was a a group of folks from Mississippi who said we just really need somebody to come and spend some time with us and help us figure out how to speak Mexican. And you know, I thought, oh well, I could do that. Right. Like I, I can speak Spanish and I could come down and spend a summer and figure out if there are questions that we share in common um, around sort of how the poultry industry and communities were um, were being transformed by this rapid influx of immigration from across Latin America. And so I did. And what did you and I ended up spending a long time there? Yeah. OK, so you you were clearly there more than a summer. Yeah, I went for I, I, I committed to a summer sort of asking this question of um, what could anthropology contribute to the work that folks were doing there. And um, just f f I found this really engaging kind of ragtag collective of faith leaders and union representatives, um, civil rights veterans, um, immigrant immigrant justice uh, organizers who were all sort of grappling with these with these questions of how how communities were changing and what this meant for housing and schooling and certainly what this meant for uh, workers in the chicken plants who were doing really dirty and dangerous jobs. And so I stayed and I stayed for a couple of years and then I continued working with them after I left for a few more years. So what were your biggest takeaways? What did you learn? This group ended up starting a worker center and realizing that um, as long as people were unable to speak to one another, you know, speak the same language, but also because because Latin American and U.S. born workers were now working alongside one another in the chicken plants, there were, you know, rampant abuses. There are rampant abuses in the industry, lots of lots of injuries, repetitive motion problems, lacerations, amputations, mm -hmm. um, Workers are denied basic rights like going to the bathroom, get taking taking breaks when they need to use the bathroom. The plants are, chickens are basically whirling by 
uh, workers at a really alarming pace um, that that causes a lot of these injuries. And so there, we saw that there was a need for a worker center to sort of help folks learn their basic rights in chicken plants and then figure out how workers could communicate with one another across their sort of language and cultural and racial differences to make the plants a better place to work. And so that's what I was doing the, the years that I was in Mississippi while I was also doing research, uh, anthropological research on this question of, of sort of how this transformation was affecting people's lives. It was the ni- the early 1990s that the Latino population started working in a big way within these poultry centers, right? That's right. So before the 1990s in Mississippi, the chicken plants were the chicken plant workers were almost um, entirely African American women and men okay. who had who had fought to gain entrance into the plants uh, during and following the civil rights movement uh, because they had been excluded from poultry plant work before that. And so it was since the 70s and through the 70s and 80s, they had been trying to organize for better wages and working conditions. And it was sort of in the um, early 90s when those efforts started to gain traction and the industry was growing, dramatically growing, which we could talk about, that, uh, that led the chicken plants to look further afield for workers. And they started recruiting immigrant workers from, uh, from South Florida, actually. And are these both documented and undocumented immigrants that they were recruiting, or did they were they recruiting more towards one group? It depends on who you ask. I think when they uh, they were bringing both documented and undocumented workers from a very early moment. I think that um, in the early years, uh, more workers were likely to be to have some sort of work authorization because there were a lot of Cuban immigrants in Florida who have a special or who had until very recently a, a special uh, asylum status that enabled them to work. Hmm. Um, but over time, the sort of the nationalities of folks that were coming from South Florida shifted according to sort of political and economic trends such that, uh, you know, today the vast majority of, of chicken plant workers are undocumented. Okay. And so that leads me to, in August, there was a large ice rage in, in was it one or was it in multiple plants, poultry plants in Mississippi? It was in seven different chicken plants across six towns. Uh, and these were, yeah, these were this, the, the towns that I had lived and worked in 15, 10 to 15 years ago now. Uh, and it was, it has now been called the the largest single state um, immigration enforcement action in the country's history. They, um, I think about 680 people were detained in those raids. And these, these are people that were essentially recruited by the poultry industry. Well, yeah, I think early on people were actively recruited uh, throughout the mid to late nineties, even in the early two thousands, when I got there, there were still um, companies that were bringing workers from South Florida but um, probably by the, what do you call the mid-2000s, by 2004, 2005, there really wasn't a need to continue actively recruiting because immigrants have networks, right? And the, the chicken plants went from having to actually bring people and give them housing and provide them transportation to um, ultimately, you know, relying on immigrants' own networks to bring friends and family from near and far. And those are the people 
I mean, some folks in the plants have been there probably these 20, 20, 25 years, but um, for the most part, people were probably somewhat newer. But they have established communities and families that were, that are there, they're still there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's, I don't know, Kristen, have you spent any time in the, in the rural South? Not, you know, I was born in North Carolina, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. quite count in the rural (laughs) South. Um, So not really. Well, the the towns that uh, that were raided and and that I lived in are, you know, they're they're small places and they're and they're completely dominated by the poultry industry. There's almost there's very little else going on economically. So um, if you're not working in the plants or growing chickens for the plants, then you're likely working in some sort of ancillary industry or support industry. You know, maybe you. Um, provide childcare for plant workers' kids, or maybe maybe you work in the schools, maybe you sell um, food at, you know, in the parking lot at lunch or at a restaurant down the street. So the, the entire community is really dominated by poultry. You know, one thing that I like to share sometimes when I give a talk is the, the, the big high school football rivalry in Scott County, Mississippi, where I lived, um, is is uh, competing for the gold chicken trophy? Oh, really? Um, yeah. Wow. So, and and every every summer there's a a festival called the Wing Dang Doodle Festival in honor of <laughs> of chicken. So it's it's it, yeah, poultry is very dominant. And uh, if you're not working for the industry itself, you are you are still gravely impacted by what happens in the in the poultry industry. And yeah, and folks who you know, there were U.S. born and immigrant folks working in the plants um, and still working in the plants. But everybody was was sort of caught uh, by surprise by these raids and have been deeply affected by them in one way or another. Yeah. What was the, I'm interested you were talking about in the plants. So historically, it's been African Americans that were working in the plants and then the I assume an increase in demand on poultry within the U.S. brought the need for more workers. What is what is the cultural climate look like when you have two very beautiful and distinct cultures kind of come together within a community? I mean, one of the things that I have documented is that there are both points of friction and points of um, collaboration, right, or of understanding and and how sort of the racial landscapes of the South complicate that. So one of the things that I've that I've written quite a lot about is sort of how uh, immigrants were initially received. One of the things that that I often heard um, living in Mississippi's poultry communities is that well, at least immigrants are are hard workers, right? And if Black folks had had wanted to work, then they wouldn't have had to bring the immigrants in. I think it's it's important to think about how how people end up using racial lenses to think about talk about immigration, because what what the sort of historical research that I did shows is that, sure, the industry was growing. We were eating a lot of chicken, a lot more chicken, and and fast food was growing, and people were concerned about cholesterol, which the poultry industry was was really good at sort of marketing around. Um, but also, African American workers were were organizing right, and were were bringing unions and 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 the the chicken plant's um, response to the possibility of greater worker power was bringing immigrants in. So they were really pitted 
black and Latino workers were pitted against each other from an early moment in the plants. And part of the work that we did through the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center was bring people uh, together across those differences to to get to know one another and to learn about each other's histories and cultures. And, you know, when that, when, when we had the opportunity to do that, it was really beautiful. And people were surprised to learn about each other's histories of struggle and um, experiences, right? And we're able to draw, sort of draw connections. And I think this relates somewhat, Kristen, to going back to this idea of just being able to travel and meet people who are different than you. It can happen in your own backyard as well. Yeah. No, I was, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking about that and how your perspectives can change. And if you can just take down those barriers and take down the preconceived notions or a lens that you may have had previously. Right. And this is both, you know, immigrants who don't really have a conception of what's happened in, um, in sort of the U.S. civil rights history or in the rural South specifically and the sorts of violence that people have lived, racialized violence that people have lived there, but also um, African-American folks wanting to know, you know, who are immigrants and why are they here? And is it true that they want to take our jobs? And, you know, what is what is their story? And I was, one of the things that I, that I was really touched by was um, in some of the workshops that we did with the Worker Center, how quickly um, African-American worker leaders were able to empathize with with the immigrant experience and draw parallels with their own. But that was what well, that was really powerful. And, uh, and I think an important opportunity for, for building relationships across those differences. So is that, I mean, does that, is that kind of your hypothesis on how in these settings, anthropology can improve the condition of lives by being able to draw those parallels and being able to see the perspective of someone else. I think that's certainly one of the contributions. And that was so in when I was working with the with the worker center, I was both, you know, studying these frictions and changes, and then also implementing, um, you know, collaborating with the worker center to implement some of these programs where people could learn about each other's experiences. And so I thought and that was that was really generative for me in thinking about you know, what the big lessons were. So those workshops were both sort of the application of anthropology or anthropological knowledge and also an opportunity to learn. But I think the other thing that anthropology contributes is uh, I wasn't just studying sort of the, the people who work in the industry, but I was also studying the industry itself, right, and how the industry had, had changed and how it how it has, I guess, harnessed the um, the opportunities afforded by uh, by globalization, right? By the by the mass movement of people uh, to to turn a profit, really. And so, thinking about the ways in which globalization facilitates uh, certain types of movement and and profit making um, at the at the expense of of others, right? Sort of who are the winners and who are the who are the people that are shouldering the the risk of globalization? So, you probably get this question a lot, but. Do you eat poultry? <laughs> I do get that question <laughs> a lot. <laughs> People are always curious. Yeah. I mean, you know probably the most about this industry. Yeah, I feel conflicted. Uh, I do eat poultry. And uh, in our household, we try to buy locally uh, to, as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, 
actually while I was living in, in Mississippi and um, when Tutu and I were, were dating, we decided we were only going to eat animals that we slaughtered ourselves. Okay, tell me more about that. <laughs> well, it was sort of a principled stance, right, on, on industrial, uh, I guess, industrial animal slaughter. And, you know, if you're going to eat meat, you should, you should know where it comes from and you should be able to handle sort of the, I guess, the ethical implications of, of, the, of that. Um, I, I have never been able to eat an animal that I, or actually, I have never been able to actually slaughter an animal. This we was really me relying on Tutu, my husband from West Central Africa, who was very comfortable with slaughtering animals himself. <laughs> and so, yeah, for a while, he would like slaughter a goat in the backyard or a rabbit or a chicken. Um, it didn't last too long. Maybe and six where did he, you. this was when you were living in the U.S.? Yeah, I was living in Mississippi, and he was living in Nashville at the time. Okay, so where would you acquire these animals for their slaughter? Oh, my goodness. He had connections in Nashville to farmers, and so he would um, – I mean, there's actually a funny story. One time he and his roommate uh, drove out to a farm to get a goat, and they tied it up and put it in the trunk of their car <laughs> and drove it back to the city – and opened the trunk, and the goat had gotten itself untied and, like, hopped out the car and ran down the street. And and Tutu and, and his roommate were, yeah, chasing this goat down the street. I was not there to witness it, but it's a story that has long, long <laughs> persisted in our family about the Tutu's days slaughtering, slaughtering his own food. That's really funny. So, okay, so Tutu is from Equatorial Guinea. Yes. Okay. Central West Africa. Mm-hmm. You met him in the U.S. at a conference at the National Poultry Justice Alliance conference. That's right. In the at the National Poultry Justice Alliance meeting in in Washington D.C. Okay. I want to know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you a little bit earlier about the meeting, right? Tutu, um, straight out of law school, he came from Equatorial Guinea and um, his for college. And he went to the University of Tennessee because his father knew one other Equatoguinean who, who had gone to college and was still in Knoxville. So there was a connection there, right? Uh-huh. Um, as these things often often do, you know, folks who travel, uh, migrate internationally often are, are connected to someone in the place that they're going. Mm-hmm. And it could be, you know, six degrees of separation, but there's one other person from your country in that town. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, you guys should inter- you should talk to Tutu for for this podcast, but um, he's got a lot of great stories. Uh, he when he finished law school, he went to college and law school at University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and um, he got a fellowship out of straight out of law school um, to represent migrant farm workers through a legal aid organization that that actually was from Texas and that was sort of, as I was talking about before, was sort of following this movement of people into the Deep South. So they had an office in Nashville, and they, and they represented migrant farm workers across six states in the South, and Mississippi was one of them. And Tutu's fellowship was to focus specifically on poultry and catfish workers. Yeah, and it was like a, a two-year, I think a two-year fellowship. And so we were sort of part of this team of people that I mentioned who were, who were thinking through, you know, how do you how do you help people know their rights um, at work 
especially when they're migrants and um, often mistakenly think that they don't have any workplace rights. Um, I think um, um, a lot of Americans, too, we think that if, if someone is undocumented, that they must not have any rights at all. But actually, in the workplace, they have basically the same rights as, as any other worker, right, as a, as a U.S.-born worker. And so Tutu was part of a legal team that was, that was educating folks and representing them. Wow, so it was really meant to be. (laughs) Right. He then, you know, not long after abandoned me in the South and went on to to do things that he really loved that were that poultry workers. But um, I I was hooked and I stayed much longer. Wow. And did you were you guys dating long distance? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Between Tennessee and, and and Mississippi. Yeah, first it was between Texas and Tennessee, and then Mississippi and Tennessee, then Mississippi and New York then Mississippi and DC. And then eventually, I think three or four years in, he moved with me to back to Texas. Okay. That probably got (laughs) old. I can relate. (laughs) Yeah. So when you were talking about the workers' rights, is there, what are the top rights? What does somebody have? What do you use to to advocate for those? What are you want to know? Yeah, what are, what, yeah. I what mean, are what when you work? yeah when you're you know at the center, for example, or if you're working with different industry workers and wanting to educate them on their rights, are there sort of the list of rights that they should know? I mean, how do you go about doing this? Yeah, we would we we used to hold know your rights workshops. And we would sort of elicit from um, from poultry workers, you know, what were their biggest questions and concerns on the job, and and uh, there were some that always that always came up. So some I mentioned earlier, um, there are a lot of injuries at work, and um, whether you have papers or not, you have you are eligible for workers' compensation. Should you get injured, you need you have the right to attention. Um, and that, that is something that the poultry industry is, is really remarkably skilled at, at, at confusing people about their, their rights to medical attention. Mm. Uh, people have the right to uh, minimum wage and to time and a half pay for overtime. They have the right to regular breaks and the right to use the bathroom when they need to. They have the right to organize a union. These are some of the most sort of basic. The, the United States is not known for its labor protections. <laughs> Among developed countries, it's one of the sort of one of the the least amount or the least protective um, of the labor force. But oh, these are some of the the basic protections that all of us, at, you know, as workers um, have, mm-hmm. regardless of regardless of work authorization or citizenship status. Do you see the industry improving? Do you think it will improve? Uh, I have not seen the industry improve. I know there have been a lot of efforts um, to try to hold the industry accountable. I think there are a couple of problems. <laughs> I think as long as as long as corporations are held solely accountable to their owners and shareholders, you know, they're they're the way that we think about corporations right now is basically actually since the 1970s or 80s is that that's their sole sort of legal responsibility is to to produce profit for shareholders. And as long as that's happening, they're going to, you know, they're going to be incentivized to, to do that on the, on the backs of, of, of people that can be exploited for low wage labor. I think unless there's greater regulation of people's rights to organize and 
sort of a recognition that corporations should be accountable more broadly, not just to shareholders, but other stakeholders, right? Like the communities where they're working, the people that work for them. It's going to be hard to to see much improvement. So basically your work continues. Yeah. And actually right now, um, the um, the line speed of poultry is, is at, I think it's at 140 birds per minute. And the industry is lobbying the federal government to try to get it uh, removed entirely, trying to argue that there's not a, a correlation between line speed and injury, which is, you know, counter to all sorts of research. Huh. And many corporations um, under the current administration have gotten uh, waivers of the line speed. So I'm afraid that it's, at the moment, it's getting worse. I do think that there's a role for us to play as consumers, right? Yeah. So what is that? What's your recommendation? Well, I think that's one, you know, one way that we have power in our, in our country is, is through our, through our consumer power, what we buy. I don't know, Kristen, are you familiar with an organization, uh, a workers organization out of Florida called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers? No, I'm not. I think they, they have a really interesting model. So they are tomato pickers um, in South Florida who in the 80s and 90s, you know, were, were trying to get growers to respect their basic human rights, similar to the chicken plants, right, to have breaks where there's shade to be able to use a bathroom to get paid a decent wage. And they were totally unsuccessful until they realized that they could partner with consumers. And so I think they're a really interesting model for thinking about how we can use our sort of our buying power. Um, They have organized across the country, largely on college campuses, but also other places for, for consumers to put pressure on the large, the big buyers of tomatoes. So like the fast food restaurants and the Walmart and other uh, big grocery chains um, who, who buy tomatoes in mass. They started in the 1990s um, with a campaign that targeted Taco Bell. They put pressure on Taco Bell to only buy tomatoes from farmers who would grant workers these very basic huh. um, rights. The rights, yeah. Yeah, and it was successful. Um, it's called the Fair Food Program, and consumers across the country have worked with the Immokalee workers. Um, now, almost every fast food chain, Walmart, a lot of grocery chains are signed on to the Fair Food Program. So they're buying their tomatoes from farmers who provide shaded breaks, who provide bathroom breaks, who have a zero tolerance policy toward um, sexual assault, and who pay one penny per pound, uh, one penny more per pound of tomatoes that the workers pick. And with just one penny more per pound, they've, they've doubled farm workers' wages. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The buying power is really powerful. And, I, you know, I do think that the world is changing in just how we, at least maybe our country is changing in how we look at food in where it comes from, what ingredients are in it. And, and I th- so I think I think that's certainly there's definitely more of a focus, I guess, you know, more of a health focus in a sense. But the next layer of that, if people could be more conscious of the rights and how that food's getting to you and, and where is it coming from and were the workers treated 
as they should have been and are they receiving fair wages? I mean, I think the food industry industry changes. And I, I do think people are much more conscious of these things now than... It's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And we can see the way that the industry has responded to people's concerns about their own health and the way that they've responded to concerns about animal welfare. Uh-huh. Right? With... It's hard to find an egg in the grocery store now that doesn't that's not free range right, right. That, that the hens don't get some daylight and, and and ground to scratch on yeah I think the next sort of frontier of the fair food movement is to to help consumers think about the labor question to think about yeah. who is really offering to produce the food that we that we eat yeah I mean I think what the probably the biggest factor that ends up coming into play there is the economic factor of the actual consumer, right? Because if you're going to go to the farmer's market and buy your poultry, you're going to pay more than if you're going to Costco. Or if you're going to, you know, get the Tyson, you know, chicken from the local grocery store. Getting people to switch on to that too and or figure out, you know, I don't know the answer to it, but the affordability. Certainly consumers are driven by that so maybe it says like no pesticides and free range and you know and that's and there then and it's in that price range right yeah well if you I mean it's so you're pointing out a good you know you're making a good point that that not everybody can afford I guess the the basically that our food is cheap uh, because it's being subsidized by by the people who produce it right and yeah and it's it would be I think it's a big shift um and mentality to pay more for to ensure ensure the the ethical treatment of workers, but also you know some of that cost that cost doesn't have to be entirely um, borne the by consumer. the consumer. No, I mean it's just yeah. like the Taco Bell com- campaign, or I mean if you're getting if you're being an activist and you're demanding th- you know the that from the company that's bringing the product in, then there's yeah there's certainly other ways to get there. You can, uh, if you go to Whole Foods now, you can, you can see the fair food program sticker on, on some of their tomatoes. Oh, cool. Okay. Angela, we're at the end of our time together. So I wanted to, I'm I'm so fascinated by the research that you're doing, the work that you've spent your career doing. And so it was really interesting to learn more. And I'm going to, in the show notes, link to a couple articles of yours that about the industry that you've written that are really beautifully written and um, have a lot of history and information for anybody who wants to learn more. That's great. But I wanted to bring you to our end of podcast questions. And so as you know, um, our podcast is the Illuminate Podcast, and we are talking to different people illuminating in their lives. And you are a great example of that. Um, And so is your husband as well. And I agree, we do need to get him on the show. And is there somebody that for you, when you think about somebody who illuminates, who would that be for you? It has to be Tutu. And maybe it's cliche to say. No, it's not at all. Yeah, my husband Tutu Alicante is, I think, um, is a real illuminator. He's, He's inspiring. You know, he's got an amazing story of his own of um, coming from um, from Equatorial Guinea, which is the world's longest standing dictatorship. And um, like your husband, George, um, has been working tirelessly over the last 15 years um, on a project that that he you know, that that was his baby that he started that's um, trying to 
to do human rights and democracy work um, in his country. And it's difficult uphill work, but he he always does it with a smile. He, um, I mean, he's dealing with really heavy issues of, of, you know, torture and disappearance and threats and, and, you know, massive graft on an international scale. And, and he, he's not daunted and he, he's just a real optimist. And I think that comes off in his personal relationships as well. He's very intentional about, about building relationships um, with people that he cares about. He does a lot of domestic labor and I'm so grateful for him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine my life and our family's existence without him. He's, he's a real inspiration to, to us and to every, honestly, to everybody who yeah, meets him. He's a real inspiration to me as well. So our podcast was started out of a supper club. And so we ask our guests if they have a favorite recipe that they'd like to share. Um, I know that you are, you are also married to an amazing chef. I don't know if you share some of the cooking uh, with him in, in your house or if you have something that you, that's your go-to, but would love to hear that. Yeah, Tutu is a real gourmet cook. You know, he he worked his way. I don't, I don't know if you've heard this story, Kristen, but he worked his way through college and law school um, in kitchens. Yes. Um, in Knoxville from starting at McDonald's and Macaroni Grill and um, has a real, <laughs> learned a lot apparently um, in those kitchens and has a real love for cooking. And so if I share a recipe, I guess I would say, First of all, I'm totally jealous of the supper club. That's such a neat idea. And um, I wish we lived close to you guys and could and could participate. Yes, in we'd love that. Or maybe we should start one here in Chapel Hill. It sounds it sounds great. I think <laughs> if we were part of the supper club, um, Tutu would probably be when it when it does it rotate around to different houses? It does. Yep. It rotates each month to a different house who hosts the dinner. So when you guys come to our house, Tutu would probably make a paella. Mm. Um, it's sort of his signature dish and he can make all different kinds of paellas um, and they're just amazing and um, I am not nearly as skilled as he uh, which is why I can recommend to your listeners um, uh, it's not one recipe but a but a cookbook that I have relied on um, to learn more about cooking yes paellas. love it um, it's by some it's by um, Penelope Casas and I think the book is just called paella but it has all different types of paellas in it and vegetarian and fish and meat and um if you want to learn to make paellas like tutu uh for your supper club i would i would recommend looking at that there's a really good one that's like salmon and asparagus paella it's one of my favorites awesome do you have a book recommendation you know i have so many books on my shelf right now i'm um, (laughs) i'm on a writing fellowship this year and i'm working on on my second book. Uh, and so there's, I'm looking for inspiration and I'm, there's so many books I want to read, but the one that I'm most excited about, I, I, I don't know if it counts as a recommendation because I have not gotten to read all of it yet, but it's the one that I'm most eager to find time to read. Um, it's called separated by William D Lopez family and community in the aftermath of an immigration raid. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that there were raids in Mississippi and I've been in touch with folks there since August and, and, I've had sort of immigration raids on, on my mind. And I think this book is written by um, someone who is a, a scholar of public health. And he's really, I think, very vividly bringing to life how, um, how raids affect communities 
right? Mm-hmm. All the different, all the different people and, and communities. And, and I have heard that it's really beautifully written. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. I love that recommendation. And last, what is your message for the world? I think that when I look back on, I don't know, just thinking about the types of questions that you, that you asked me and, and, you know, why I became an anthropologist and how I, you know, I dedicate my life to teaching, to teaching college students and to, to writing in ways that I hope are accessible and that help people connect with others. So I think my message for the world would, it has to do with empathy. I think, I think empathy is really um, the key to human relations and to peace and to understanding. It's something that I fear is harder and harder to come by um, as our country and our world becomes more and more polarized. I think opportunities to learn about um, and meet people who are different from us are really, really vital for, for our abilities to connect across difference. And that's what I try to do as an anthropologist in my writing and in my teaching um, is build empathy. And it's certainly, I feel what has, the opportunities that I have had to, to do that is what has made me who I am today. Thank you, Angela, for joining us today and for teaching me so much. And friends, thank you for listening to the Illuminate podcast. 2019 was an exciting year for us as we launched the Illuminate podcast. We have a lot in store for you in 2020 and are grateful for your support on this journey. We hope that 2020 brings you hope, happiness, and is full of life. Have a great week and start to this new decade.